are starting a new sermon series um, that we've called Spirit-Filled Living. Uh, right off the break, I just want to say there's a lot of teaching in the world about the Holy Spirit. Some of it good, some of it not so good. And that's why people tend to have a lot of questions about this topic. I mean, because you can find teaching that's all over the place on the topic of the, of the Holy Spirit, I think that many Christians have developed one of two suspicions. That there are some Christians who are suspicious that we ought to be experiencing more of the Holy Spirit than we are. And there are other Christians who are suspicious that some of them other Christians are going too far with what they're calling the Holy Spirit. In a sense, both suspicions are correct. I think it's fair to say that many Christians and many churches live and act as if the Holy Spirit is irrelevant to their lives. They should be experiencing more. And at the same time, we can look around the world and look around the, the Christian world in particular, and we can see many things being done and said in the name of the Holy Spirit that actually go way too far. That actually, upon inspection, probably have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. So often, the problem with both suspicions is this. They're based on experience. So sometimes people who say, hey, we should be experiencing more of the Holy Spirit are thinking back to positive spiritual experiences that they've had, and they're wanting more of that. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is experience-based. And if we're not careful, experience will become the functional authority rather than the Scripture. And, and, and by the same token, there are people who look out and say there have been too many excesses in the name of the Holy Spirit are also often looking at experiences of things that have been chaotic and out of control and sometimes downright heretical. And based on those negative experiences, have said, listen, we, we're going too far. Or we may be in danger of going too far. And, and interestingly, functionally, experience has become their authority too. What we really want is to kind of walk between those suspicions, at least a healthy aspect of those suspicions, and to root our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and, and how the Holy Spirit works, not in our experience, but in the Scripture, in the Word of God, so that our experience is second place to the Scripture, and our experience is interpreted by the Scripture. By the scripture. If we're not careful, we'll all sort of look back to different experiences and, and have this duel, this dueling warfare based on our experiences. We're not going to get very far that way. We need a plumb line. We need a tiebreaker. We need a standard. And that's the Word of God. All the while, we want to be careful. The Bible isn't taking second place to our experiences, whether positive or negative. Because out of that, I think there are sort of two views that have grown up. Um, there is a shallow view of the Holy Spirit, and there is a kind of non-existent view of the Holy Spirit. By a shallow view, I mean a kind of emphasis on things that actually the Scripture, while they're in the Scripture, the Scripture doesn't emphasize, right? So often, folks who are focused on the Holy Spirit are, are, are driven to conversations and arguments about spiritual gifts, but in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul's whole point there is to minimize the gifts and to actually elevate love. He's not saying the gifts are irrelevant. He's saying that they're not actually the focus. Right? Or the non-existent view. The tendency to so downplay the Holy Spirit, including the gifts of the Spirit and everything else the Spirit does, that, that we become functional atheists. I love the way A.W. Tozer put this. <laughs> He says that some churches put so little emphasis on the Holy Spirit that if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw, they wouldn't notice for three months. Ouch. <laughs> we don't want to be an experience-based, suspicious church in either direction. We want to be a Scripture-based, joyful church that embraces their God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So I have two goals in this series as we get started. The first is this. For any of us who may have a, a shallow view that, 
that the, I want us to be convinced that the Spirit's ministry is much wider and much deeper than that viewpoint might suggest. Bless you. And at the same time, I want to convince those of us who've had a kind of non-existent view of the Holy Spirit's role and work in our lives that the Spirit is absolutely vital and necessary to living the Christian life. So I want some folks to be convinced of the necessity of the Spirit, and I want some folks who are already convinced of His necessity to see a deeper, wider ministry that we should be embracing. Y'all tracking with me? So I'm going to start today by asking and answering a, a, a simple question that, that really could be a series in and of itself, and that is this, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? I want to answer that question under sort of two broad headings. I want to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, and I want to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to answer who the Holy Spirit is in terms of his own person or being, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the things the Scripture teaches about the Holy Spirit's work and ministry in our lives and in the church. So let's begin with that first question. Uh, who is the Holy Spirit? And let's answer it in two ways with regard to his person. The first thing I want to say is that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Here's how our statement of faith puts it. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith begins this way. This divine and infinite being, referring to God, consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. So when we talk about God being triune, we're talking about a being who, who exists in three persons, yet has one essence, one godness, if you will. The statement goes on this way. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several uh, distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence upon Him. Let me paraphrase that last sentence. You break apart the Trinity, you wrongly underemphasize any person in the Trinity, it will distort your fellowship with God. It will affect your relationship and your walk with God. So this is vital to our Christian um, experience. We believe that there's one God who has existed forever. We believe that that one God exists in three persons. We believe that each of those persons are fully God and yet distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe that that belief is central to what it means to be a Christian. So let me demonstrate from the Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God. You've seen in our statement of faith, turn with me to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. We're going to be bouncing around the Scripture a little bit, and so all the hinges on your Bible, or um, write down the verses and check them out later. Acts chapter 5 tells the story of a man named Ananias and Sapphira. Two Christians in the early church who had sold property like many other Christians in the early church and who were supposed to voluntarily give some of their proceeds to the church in order to meet the needs of the poor. But Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the proceeds and, and, and tried to act like they gave more than they actually did. And this is, this is what happens there. Peter the apostle confronts them and said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, Peter said, we weren't trying to take it from you. Why are you lying? And notice what he says. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? God. Now, who did he say he had lied to in verse 3? The Holy Spirit. Those are synonyms. Peter is saying there very clearly that the Holy Spirit is God. And we can look at many other texts. Now what this means is that there are some things, therefore, that we cannot believe. Not and remain historic Trinitarian Christians. Let me give you two of them. Number one, 
We cannot believe that there is one God who simply manifests himself at different times in different modes. That's called modalism or Sabellianism. It's a heresy that was rejected in the fourth century. We must believe that all three persons exist at all times and are yet distinguishable but one God. Uh, Look with me in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Uh, There we're going to see all three persons of the Trinity in the same scene. This is at Jesus' baptism. Uh, John is baptizing Jesus as he begins his earthly ministry. Notice what happens in Luke 3, beginning in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus, there's the Son of God, also had been baptized and was praying, the the heavens were opened, verse 22, And the Holy Spirit, there's a third person of the Trinity, descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice, we'll see whose voice this is, came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all in the same scene, not different modes, but one God in three persons. Now, the second thing we must not believe, we cannot believe and be historic Christians, is we cannot believe that there is a ranking inside of the Trinity based upon different natures. We cannot believe that, that there is a supreme God, the Father, and somehow the Son and the Spirit are lesser gods. That's the heresy called subordinationism. Right Now, it's, a, it's an error that's based on misunderstanding the difference between the nature of God, the essence of God, wherein the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are completely equal, and the roles that the different persons play in creation and salvation. They have distinct roles, but the same essence. It's not a major God and a junior God. It's one God in equal persons for all of eternity. And this is why religious Jewish people in the New Testament do something profoundly unusual for religious Jews. When they use the name of the Son or refer to the Holy Spirit in the same breath as the Father. It's a radical reconceptualization of God as it reveals himself in Christ and by the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. Paul is distinguishing between idols and the true God, and he says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see how Paul is putting Jesus on the same par as the Father, using parallel phrases there. At the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the, the benediction that we often use, we got that Trinitarian formula, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's not the kind of language an Old Testament Jewish person would use. It's not the kind of language a Muslim would use. It's the kind of language that Trinitarian Christians use because the Holy Spirit is God. Now, what does this mean? It means that, beloved, when we think of God, we really should more actively think in Trinitarian terms. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we think of God and the reverence we ought to have for God, we ought to have the same reverence for God the Holy Spirit. So so we must not be, in all of our desiring for more experience of God the Spirit, we must not be common and casual. He's still God. We should reverence Him. At the same time, because He is God, we ought to desire Him. We ought to want to know Him, to fellowship with Him, to enjoy Him, just as God intends us to. 
The first thing we want to see about his being is that he is God. The second thing we want to see about his being is that the Holy Spirit is a person. We've been using that language already, that he's the third person of the Trinity. When we say the Holy Spirit is a person, we mean he has the characteristics of a personal being. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's a he throughout the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not just a power. He has power, but he is a person. And we see this even in how the Holy Spirit acts and engages with people throughout the Scripture. Think of all these things that indicate personhood or personality, uh, a number of things. So in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, which we've already read, the Holy Spirit can be lied to. You can't lie to a force. You can't lie to an it. You can try to deceive a person. By the way, he will never be deceived. (laughs) But not only that, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. So consider Acts chapter 7, verse 51, where there Luke writes, you stiff-necked people, he's recording a sermon there, um, it's the midst of a sermon where um, the preacher says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Stephen preaching to his Jewish audience. Not only can the Holy Spirit be resisted, but the Holy Spirit actually uh, forbids or, or rules or approves of things in the Christian's life. That's what happens to Paul on his missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, uh, the, the Bible says this, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Or well, one more. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. That indicates personhood and personality. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In all these ways, what we're seeing here is a a God, the third person of the Godhead, who who is personal, has personhood. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person means, importantly, that we can fellowship with him, and we can know him and be known by him. It is the Spirit, for example, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, who communicates God's love to us. Paul writes there, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is the Spirit in Romans who testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. He just keeps whispering to us and talking to us. Don't you know that you are the Father's child, that you are adopted in Christ? And it's because he's a person that we can have this fellowship with him. So the fellowship with God and experience of God's love and joy, all of that comes through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we could not have any of those things. If the Holy Spirit were not a person, we could not have a relationship with the Father or the Son. So we need to be aware of the Spirit's presence so that we can more profoundly enjoy and relate to God. So when people sometimes say that we should be experiencing more of the Spirit than we are, I think often this is what they're pointing to. There's something missing in our fellowship with God, and often the the problem is an underdeveloped sense of the Spirit's presence and work in our lives, this vital person in the Trinity and this vital person in our faith. So the Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit is a person. What kind of work does he do? That's what I want us to focus on now, the work of the Spirit. I want to give us several things here. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a creator. It's actually the first thing that we learn about the Spirit of God in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Then notice, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
That word spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, which could be translated breath or wind. It's often used as a symbol of God's spirit. The word hovering has the idea of, of brooding, like a hen sitting on her eggs waiting for them to hatch. It's an image that's referring to the, the creative power of the Spirit in, in bringing the world into existence. We're accustomed to thinking of God creating the world. And if we know our New Testaments in John chapter 1, we are accustomed to uh, uh, what John says there about uh, nothing being made that was made without the Son of God creating. But the Bible also says the Spirit of God is involved in creation. Psalm 104, verse 30. The psalmist says there, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, referring to the, the world, and you renew the face of the ground. It's by God's spirit that he creates. So we need to understand this. This means our entire existence our entire continuance in existence depends upon the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in all of creation. The Holy Spirit is that breath that gives life to all things. He is that person in the Godhead who joins the Father and the Son in creating all things, so much so that in Job 33, verse 4, this is what we read, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. I think this implies we should strive to live with a more constant and a more conscious dependent upon, dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit. We are always, whether we recognize it or not, because he's upholding the creation, we are always actually dependent upon him. What we need to do is make that more conscious and more constant. Two weeks ago, uh, our brother and sister Colin and Erica welcomed little Elizabeth Ruby into the world. I don't know if you've seen her or met her yet. She's a beautiful little girl, very quiet, uh, very pleasant. We visited her. They, they wrapped her up in a little swaddling cloth. Dennis and I discovered that Colin is cheating. Most husbands have to try and figure out how to make that cloth work, you know, like 15 times. Leg is stuck out, arm stuck out. They now make it with Velcro. That ain't right. <laughs> they got her wrapped up and she's laying there depending upon her parents, needing from them everything for life. We're never more than Elizabeth Ruby. We're never more than infant children utterly dependent upon our Heavenly Father and our elder brother and the Holy Spirit. So we should not move through life as if we're going through life in our own power. That's the practical atheism that we talked about a moment ago. We should, we should live our life as an act of faith, as an act of dependence upon the God who made us and the God who sustained us. For if God were to withdraw himself from us, Psalm 104 verse 29, it says the, the, the universe would, would disintegrate. It would all come to ashes. And so we want to live with the dependence upon the Spirit as our creator. The second thing that he does. The Holy Spirit is a witness. He's a witness. He testifies. He testifies specifically of Jesus. He testifies of Jesus in three ways. Number one, he testifies to Jesus directly. He gives his own testimony that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. Uh, we see that again in his baptisms. This time, look at John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. It's another recording of Jesus' baptism, and this is what we read. John bore witness. John said this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, meaning Jesus. I myself did not know him. But he, the Father, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's appearance at Jesus' baptism is the Spirit coming in the appearance of a dove to testify that this is the chosen one of God, that this is the Messiah. 
But it gets more explicit than that. Later on in the Gospels, uh, Jesus begins to teach his disciples what to expect from the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, verse 26, our Lord says this, But when the Helper comes, excuse me, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will witness about me. John 16, verse 14. The Lord says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me, meaning Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Get a, get a good sense of this, that the, the center of the Holy Spirit's ministry, the center of his revelation, the center of his testimony is not himself. It is Jesus, the Son of God. The Spirit also bears witness, not just directly, but scripturally. He bears witness in the Scripture. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he writes these words, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scripture that we have is authored by men, yes, but by men who were being carried along, being influenced and directed by the Spirit of God who was revealing the mind of God. Now here's the question. What's the scripture about? What's the content? What's the center? What's the main message of the scripture? Well, it's Jesus. Luke 24, Jesus looks at the Old Testament from the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he explains to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, everything was testifying about him in the Old Testament. And who can read the New Testament without recognizing that the New Testament is all about Jesus? From four biographies in the gospel to however many letters explaining who he is. The Spirit wrote a book, but not about himself. He wrote a book about the Son of God and testifies to him. And there's a third way the Spirit bears witness to Jesus. He bears witness through Christians. He's still bearing witness. This is what Jesus told the apostles in John 16, verses 12 and 13. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit not only witnesses about Jesus through the apostles, beloved, he witnesses about Jesus through us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this promise given to the early church, also a promise to us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so you ask the question, what does the Spirit do after creation? He testifies about Jesus directly, scripturally, and evangelistically. And we should gather two things from this. First, we should see in the Holy Spirit a model of humility that we should follow. I love the way Bruce Ware puts this in his book on the Trinity. He says, it is nothing short of remarkable that the Spirit clearly embraces and in no way, in no respect, resents the fact that he has eternally what might be called the background position in the Trinity. Amazingly, even though the Spirit has identically the same nature as the Father and the Son, even though He is fully and equally God, yet He willingly accepts this behind-the-scenes position in nearly everything that the triune God does. In creation, redemption, and consummation, he willingly accepts the role of supporter, helper, sustainer, and equipper, and in all these respects, he forsakes the spotlight. We're accustomed to thinking about Jesus' humility, aren't we? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, though he was in the form of God, he made himself of no reputation, and so on. 
But here, what we're seeing throughout the Scripture is because he too is God, the Holy Spirit is just as humble, happy to be a background player, behind the scenes, equipping and blessing. Now, that has application for us, doesn't it? If we're spirit-filled people, we're probably not trying to be out front. We probably ought not be resenting when somebody doesn't recognize us. We probably ought not be expecting the applause of men. Instead, taking great delight, like the Spirit, that we get to serve the church and serve the name of Christ and work for His glory because His glory, well, that's what we long for. Not our own. There's a second thing. We should recognize that whenever we see Jesus clearly, whenever we lay our eyes on Christ and get a, get a taste of his beauty and his glory, the Holy Spirit has been at work in us. We don't have time to trace this, but sit and meditate on 1 Corinthians chapter 2 sometime today. The Spirit's involved in the revelation of God's Word. He's involved in the illumination of God's Word. So much so that without the Spirit's illumination, we cannot understand God's Word. And if God's Word is about Christ, and we have in some way seen Jesus, and known Jesus, and loved Jesus, and tasted the goodness of Jesus, beloved, you didn't arrive at that because you're so smart. We're all like Peter who confessed that Jesus was the Christ and Jesus looked at Peter and said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father in heaven. We're all needing the Spirit to reveal Christ to us and to reveal the likeness of God to us and to help us to understand the, the treasures that we have in Christ. If you have in any way come to understand something about Jesus and to appreciate that thing you've come to understand, the Holy Spirit of God has been at work in your life. And it's shallow of us not to recognize that. He is so pervasively active, so omnipresent, and so essential that actually as Christians, we ought to be finding ways to attribute any gain in the spiritual life to the presence of the Holy Spirit. But he's so humble, we miss him, don't we? And he all right with that. A third thing. I think it's a third thing. Whatever the next thing is. The Holy Spirit saves us. He not only creates, and he not only witnesses, he saves. And listen, beloved, without the Trinity, there is no salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Let me give you the outline of it real quick. Um, the Father appoints us to salvation. Jesus accomplishes our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation. Lose any member of the Trinity and you lose the gospel. The Spirit is as active in the work of bringing us to Christ and bringing us into new life as the Father and the Son. He's absolutely essential to our salvation. And maybe the most famous story indicating that would be in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, when a man named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader at the time, came to Jesus on a sneak tip with some questions. He comes to him under the cover of night and begins to ask him about eternal life. And, and Jesus says this to him, rocks him. John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, can a man be born again? Can he climb back into his mother's womb? And Jesus explains in verses 5 to 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's a natural birth, and the Spirit, that's the second birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit's just blowing through the world in unpredictable ways and saving people, giving them a new birth, 
raising them from spiritual death to spiritual life. And without him, no one can see the kingdom of God. Because without him, no one will ever be born again. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, one of the things we believe as Christians, because of the Bible's teaching, because of Jesus' teaching, is that you actually need to be born twice. Once naturally, if you're here, you've already checked that one off. Once naturally, but the second time supernaturally. The problem is that in our first birth, our first life, we're born in sin. We have this nature that's corrupt. That's why we desire bad things. That's why we do bad things. That's why even when we have this little voice in our head telling us what's right and wrong, we so often turn a blind eye to the voice telling us what's right. We choose what's wrong. You ever done that? That comes from our sin nature. That nature actually has to be put to death. And the way it's put to death, the way it's replaced is that you're giving a new nature. That's what this new birth is about, this second birth. You're not actually being physically born again by your mother, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus. You're being born from above. You're being born again by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And that happens as we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the Spirit gives us repentance and faith. The good news is this. Starts with the bad news. We are sinners, and God is angry with us because of our sin. And if we continue in our sin, we will be judged by God forever. His judgment, His justice, His holy wrath in hell will be the future of all those who die in their sin. And the good news is this that God has loved us anyway despite our sin. And he's proven his love in this. He sent his son into the world to suffer our judgment, to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus had no sin of his own. He was dying because of our sin. That's part of what makes him beautiful. He voluntarily took our place to suffer God's judgment. And not only that, he came into the world and lived a perfectly righteous life. You know, even if we got a second chance, we'd mess it up. Or a third chance or a fourth chance. You've probably, you maybe have bargained with God. God, if you get me out of this, I promise I won't do, I won't do this no more. You know, if you do this, I promise I'll obey mama, I'll obey dad. You know, we make all kind of bargains, don't we? How many of them have you kept? No, we need to be kept. We need to be saved. And that's why God the Father sent his Son into the world to be righteousness for us and to rescue us from the judgment of God that's coming against the world. And by his great act of mercy, what God does is send his Spirit to us to, to poke us a little bit, to, to help us see our sin, and then to point us to the cross. He says, look at your sin and look at Jesus. Look at your failures and your inability to save yourself. Then look away from yourself to the Son of God who has died for you to save you and who cannot fail. And the promise of God is this. If you would put your faith in this Jesus and turn away from your sin to follow him in faith, your future will not be hell but eternal life in his kingdom. Your future will not be judgment but acceptance by God through Christ. And all the promises that God makes, he keeps, beloved. Trust in Jesus if you're not a Christian yet. Confess your sins to the Father. If you have at any point in your life recognized that you have done wrong and that you are wrong and that your wrong is against God, the Spirit has pointed that out so that you might turn to see Jesus as your Savior. Trust him. Believe in him live eternally in God's forgiveness and love. The Spirit saves. We hasten on for a couple more things. The Spirit not only saves, He also seals us. He also seals us. That's what's taught in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that's the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, the moment you believe, 
you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is marvelously good news. There is not a nanosecond that exists between us hearing the gospel and believing it and the Holy Spirit grabbing us and keeping us sealing us. That word seal there sort of uh, has the idea of a, a wax seal that you might put on, say, a letter, for example, saying that this letter, you, you own this letter. The Holy Spirit is God's seal of ownership on every Christian. You, you're walking around right now, if you're a believer, stamped. Stamped from the moment you believed as belonging to God. And the Spirit never relinquishes that ministry in your life. The Spirit never breaks that seal. He keeps us. Notice what the verse says in verse 14. He keeps us until the day of a purchased possession or the promised possession. All the way until the day of Jesus' coming back and us going to be with him in glory, the Spirit will be sealing us and keeping us until that day. That's marvelous news. Because we've already established if it's left to us, we'll lose it. If it's left to us, we'll forsake it. If it's left to us, we'll, we'll break up with God. But God keeps us. Even when we can't keep ourselves. He seals us and preserves us. Now, let me address one thing that sometimes is taught about the Holy Spirit that is actually not true. You do not need a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. The moment you are sealed, you get all of God. You get the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in His fullness. So if you're coming from a tradition that has taught that there is a, a second blessing and the evidence of that second blessing is spiritual gifts of a certain sort, so on and so forth, that is a misunderstanding of Scripture. I think it's well-intended, but I actually think it's in error. Because it's not like you get part of God when you become a Christian. It's not like God is only partly for you when you become a Christian. You get all of God. And the experience of God may grow, should grow, over our Christian lives. And God's control and influence in our lives will, will wax and wane from time to time. But beloved, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Enjoy Him. He is sealing you and keeping you until that final day. Next thing. He saves us. He seals us. He sanctifies us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face. He's making a reference to Moses and Israel. You remember when Moses was on the mount and in the glory of God and came down on the mount, his face shone with the glory of God so much so that Israel was like, yo, put something over your face. We can't look at you. Now as Christians, we're looking into the glory of God, not with a veiled face, looking at it face to face, beholding the glory of the Lord. As we do that, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is who? The Spirit. Sanctification is a fancy word that means growing in holiness. It's something the Christian does over their whole lifetime. So we're not perfectionists, and we're not going to be perfect until we see Jesus. But we are, by God's grace, going to be growing in holiness up and down as we make our way to glory. But the best way to define holiness according to this text is not by do's and don'ts, though those have their place. The essence of holiness is growing to be more like Jesus. The process for growing to be more like Jesus is looking at Jesus. Did you see that? We are being transformed into the same image, the, the glory that we are beholding. We're looking into the glory of the face of Christ, and as we are looking into the face of Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into that same image. And the one who makes the transformation happen is the Spirit. Now, that's the reason 
to be in your word often and joyfully. If we have grown, as we said before, even a little bit to be like Jesus, as we have looked at him, that is the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. It is the evidence in our lives of his work. All of our spiritual growth comes from the Spirit. We absolutely need the Spirit if we're going to make progress in holiness. The Spirit will make us grow, not by bringing attention to himself, notice that again, but by bringing attention to Jesus, making us focus on the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, and thereby transforming us. So, if you've got one takeaway from this sermon, Christian, might I suggest it be this. You spend the rest of your day and as much of every day as you can looking at Jesus, getting him into focus, feasting upon his glory. Because an amazing thing happens as you look to him. You begin to look like him. One more thing. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit helps us. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And the Helper is the, another title for the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, one of the things I love about God, I trust you've discovered this in your Christian life. One of the things I love about God is God never does unnecessary things. He ain't just up there playing, like, I, I wonder what the BD, how the BD react if I do this to him real quick. You know, he, he ain't up there, like, got a little extra sketch, you know, erasing stuff and trying to get the lines right. He never does anything extra or unnecessary. He doesn't waste a single action or a single gift. So, the fact that God sends to us the Holy Spirit as a helper must mean we need help. Maybe I'm the only one. We need help, beloved. Praise God he's a helper. Praise God he's not standing back saying, you know what? I didn't set you up. Be good. Let me see how you do with this. No, no, don't be calling me. Praise God he's not like that. He's saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, make your request known to me. He's saying, depend upon me. Lean on me. I am your help. I am your strength. I am your tower. I am everything you need. In fact, I ain't even going to wait for you to ask. I'm going to send my spirit to you so that God himself will dwell with you. Be your help and your shield. I love the illustration that I stole from Matt Chandler. It's the last time I'm going to give him credit for it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, think about, you know, most of us have, all of us have been children, uh, some of us have children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews, and, you know, when they're first born, it's just a head with, you know, like a toothpick body, right? Then the body begins to fill out a little bit, but not so much that it catch up with the head, right? So the baby learns how to sort of pull up and stand next to the table, you know, he bounces a little bit, discovers he's got legs, like, yo, no, I had those, right? And pretty soon he gets enough courage to kind of step away from the table, take a step, boom, falls down, right? Face plants every time. You know what the mom and dad never do? The dad doesn't look at the baby, take a face plant, see what, you know, that's your side of the family right there. You know, you get that from me. No, the baby take a, barely take a half step. Mom and dad like, oh, he's walking, he's walking. He go over, and, and what do they do? They pick him up and set him up, do it again, do it again, do it again. And he's just helping all the way until the baby is holding figures, learning to toddle, and soon can walk. God's our helper. We fall, he picks us up. A saint is not a sinner who fell down and got up. <laughs> a saint <laughs> is a sinner whom God lifts up every time, over and over. And he does it by his spirit. The apostles in the first century needed that confidence, and they wrote it down so that we would have this confidence. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. 
says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's yours, Christian. That's yours. You can say that with confidence. You can say that without doubt. You can say that without fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But if God is on your side, you're always the majority. He's your helper. Trust him. So let's conclude on this point. Just want to read three verses, three passages for you and land a plane. The Holy Spirit then is God's gift of himself to his people. It's God's gift of himself to his people. And we see that language of gift several times in the scripture referring to the Holy Spirit. And I'll just give you three. Number one, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask for him, beloved. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preaching there at Pentecost. He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree. Why did he do that? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In one sense, beloved, God is the gospel. The gospel is God offering himself to us. He does that most immediately and directly and permanently in his spirit. Receive the gift. Enjoy the gift. Depend on the gift. Let the gift turn you always and ever toward Jesus. You'll be living a spirit-filled life. Let's pray together. Father, what you have given us in your Son, through the Spirit, defies imagination. When we consider all that you have given us and we've only scratched the surface in the Holy Spirit, we realize that our thoughts are weak and uninspired. So grant that we would come again and again to this book, your word, and there meet with your spirit, have our minds illumined with understanding by the spirit, so that we might see Christ and see Jesus in his glory. And beholding him in his glory would be transformed ourselves into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Grant us to know you, Father. Grant us to know you, Jesus. Grant us to know you, Holy Spirit, more deeply than we have, and to come to you with a sense of your absolute necessity for life and godliness, indeed for creation's existence. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.